Hi, and welcome to The Transect. Uh, I'm Cody. I'm Ian. And I'm Sean Pekinotten. And uh, (laughs) today we have a a, a special guest. Uh, We have uh, Karen Rose Thomas uh, from Slavertooth Nation. Uh, Sean, would you like to introduce a little more? Yeah, uh, Karen just recently graduated from Simon Fraser University with honors and a minor in anthropology. Is that right, Karen? Yes. And you'll be attending the University of British Columbia this fall (laughs) to pursue your master's, aren't you? Yes. And we're very excited about that, aren't we? We are. Yeah. We're also nervous. We're also nervous. No, be nervous. We like to talk in the third person. Do we? Okay, <laughs> we can do that all day. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Uh, I guess we, we here at the Transect often kind of get into things with uh, where people entered, you know, archaeology, how they kind of came to, to meet each other. Uh, would you care to share a bit of your origin story with us? Sure. Um, I like to joke that uh, archaeology and I were a little bit of serendipity. Um, I was working for Starbucks in like the fourth of five horrible dead-end years, and I received a call from my cousin who was like, "Uh, do you have steel toes, and are you busy tomorrow? And I was like, no, I do not have steel toes, and no, I am not busy. And she's like, come get a check for $50. I'll give you a steel toe boot allowance. And... uh, you can muster at Gilmore Skytrain like tomorrow morning at 7 and I was like okay so I take the check and I cash the check and I get to Markswork Warehouse and there's like one pair of women's work boots in size 11 my mm. atrociously large size <laughs> and I the boots are forty nine ninety five, <laughs> and I spend the entire boot allowance check and I like I show up at Gilmore the next morning at 7am and my aunt Eileen is actually there already chain smoking and drinking tea and I actually I found myself at um, a safety orientation for the SFPR perimeter um, self Fraser perimeter road archaeological mitigation team mm-hmm. and they just needed a body to fill a seat and I was a body that had a day yeah. and I got free boots and <laughs> I didn't hear from them for like another month and then I, I got a a month sort of contract begged my Starbucks manager for like time off the schedule and eventually they just filed my papers because they were like tired of scheduling me with no hours <laughs> and then I pouted at at, um, at the nation at Treaty Lands and Resources and was like can I, can I please stay forever because this is really great and then I applied and got accepted to university like in within like the month of starting that project and everything just sort of landslided away from me oh wow nice. and here I am <laughs> yeah because so, you, you oh sorry go ahead so wait this is all within a month you uh, you first got that SFPR gig and then you got into SFU and then you started your archaeology courses like immediately? No, um, I, I spent a month working at Starbucks before I got a plate, like, um, slowly wanted to rotate out their arc monitors. So everyone got a little bit of training Yeah, because the South Fraser perimeter road project like impacted some really significant sites Yeah, and they wanted everyone to get like, um, we wanted everyone to get a chance to work at such a rich site and gain some experience. Mm-hmm. So we were going to rotate out our arc monitors. And but except for my aunt got a permanent placement there, and I was like, "Can, can I just stay here with her?" <laughs> um, so because all of the other nations, there were um, reps from the seven local nations out there. Um, they were all permanent people, mm-hmm. and Slowitu was the only nation that wanted to rotate out there their people but you ended up having a permanent yeah role well because i pouted for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> please please let me stay um but yeah so and then as soon as like it was a really um like all of the passionate professionals they as soon as i said like i want to go to university they like changed the way they talked to me about stuff and so it became like a crazy learning experience and mm-hmm. um i worked there for about six months before i started i didn't start until um 
well, I guess the summer 2012 was my first semester at SFU. And it would have been like the late summer of 2011 when I got placed on the project. Oh, nice. That's all so very quick. Cool. So when did you start, uh, did you start taking archaeology courses immediately when you got into university? Or did that my come first, later? My first semester was part, like I, I got accepted into the arc department, like straight up. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and my first semester I took like a math class because I was a math nerd. Mm-hmm. And um, I also took geology. But it was like an intercession class. So it was like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It was really, (laughs) it was an intense first semester. Mm -hmm. And I was still working at SFPR for three days a week. um, Oh, wow. While going to first semester. For my first semester, yeah. Yeah. I thought, I'm like, I'll just ease my way in. But (laughs) it was kind of like I wasn't ready to leave work. Uh, yes, I can. And I guess uh, we should, we'll, we we'll take this moment to introduce uh, our other podcast uh, guest. Uh, this is uh, Phaedra. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lion King right now. Yeah, she's watching The Lion King right now. <laughs> yeah. There she goes. She is uh, Karen's daughter. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And you've been, uh, Phaedra's been along, along for the last four years. So she's been along for your whole university ride, hasn't she? Uh, yeah. I pretty much got pregnant in my first year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like my first full time semester, and I was pregnant and a single parent. Well, that's a serious year, yeah. Well, it's kind of cool because just uh, just last week, Karen uh, graduated and mm-hmm. gave a keynote speech, didn't you? Yes, I did. And you said something quite interesting, didn't you? Well, um, according to Sean, he got to watch the president's face. <laughs> I, of course, do not have eyes on the back of my head. I didn't get to see the reaction. Um, but no, I was the graduate speaker for um, the convocation ceremony of the Faculty of Environment and the Faculty of Applied Sciences, and I didn't know what to say that would be poignant and moving, so I just told some of my own story, um, basically about archaeology, and like, you know, uh, wondering if SFU is like a safe space for me, like they do a lot to cultivate a, an environment for Indigenous students that, that is nurturing, but it's also like a colonial enterprise, <laughs> like I don't even know, uh, it's mm-hmm. really contradictory to be an Indigenous student. And that's and that's something that's yeah. come up before. I've, I'm reading a Sean Wilson's book, um, Researchers Research Ceremony. It's one of my favorite books. He talks about he ended up going to do a degree in uh, Brisbane, but he talks early on of coming to Vancouver and, and, and studying at SFU and, and a- acknowledging that um, it didn't feel like a safe space for Indigenous people in the early '90s. I believe this was. I think he he's from um, is he is he Cree from Alberta or? I'm not sure. But but remember, it was a comment that's come up a few times. How do you find SFU? I mean, I know you commented on just still a lot of work to be done with reconciliation, uh, returning the ancestors' remains to the communities, and that's something that needed to be said, and that's something you did bring up in the speech. I think it's poignant that needed to be said as well. Um, do you feel now, after being there for four years, it is a safe place for Indigenous students? I feel like, well, I said in my speech, like, mostly, yes, it is a safe space. I think that there are a lot of passionate allies and champions like both within the archaeology department and within the greater university who have like good intentions and mm-hmm. and who um take the time to contemplate like indigenous students but um yeah the the comment i made that sean is referring to was like uh you know i i have witnessed reconciliatory events but it's also like I had to do work study under the watchful eyes of ancestors, mm-hmm. like where they lie in their cardboard and styrofoam on like metal utility shelves that like line the entire basement. So mm-hmm. like, A, I wanted to, to acknowledge that, you know, they're there with me. It's, it's, a, it's a mountain, it's a university campus within the territory of my people. And, 
and yeah, sure, the, the ancestors should be there with me, but, but maybe not in that way. And I don't think that any other archaeology students, like, unless they're indigenous from, from local nations, like, they don't have that experience of, of like, your ancestors' skeletal remains, like, physically being present while you're sorting shell midden by species. Like, mm-hmm. it's a unique experience. Yeah. Um, there's a, and I feel like that gets... There's a lot of people that, that are really, really excited about Bones. They've maybe watched a lot of the, the TV show actually called Bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, like, these are, you know, like, uh, European kids. And they, they're like, oh, I want to be a forensic pathologist. And they get really into Bones. They get really, really good at, like, identifying different kinds of Bones. But it always kind of ends up being, like, at, at an arm's reach. There's no... There's no humanity. Um, I originally got to SFU and I thought that I wanted to specialize in osteology, I thought that I wanted to be a bone dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came to realize that I didn't advocate for the additional excavation of, of like additional ancestors and that ultimately I would work my way out of a job one day because I would want everyone to either stay in the ground or like be sent back. Like, you know, your mm-hmm. your research pool is limited when you're advocating for the repatriation of like your main subject. So like I've done some repatriation work and some reinterment, like the spiritual work involved with putting the ancestors back in the ground in a good way. And I think that's my capacity for working with the ancestors. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, the students and your, your peers, when you're coming up, they have that early recognition kind of what Cody was talking about the fatuation with the show, like bones and the other things like that in pop culture. Do they have the understanding that these, these are humans that lived and have a story? Uh, can you speak to that? And do you think, also, the second part of that, do you think they're learning that when they're in university to sort of have a deeper understanding and carry themselves with that kind of respect that needs to be done when you're with human remains? And then also the third part would be getting them back, but mm. it's more the first two questions. I think that I've encountered both. Um, I took osteology and paleopathology because I, like early on, I thought that's what I was going to do. I thought I was going to do my honors, like mm-hmm. um, re-examining. There's, there's like a fragmentary collection of ancestors from Belcara, and I mm-hmm. wanted to look at them and like they haven't been, they haven't been studied since the seventies, and I wanted to revisit them and then like work on repatriating them, mm-hmm. like on behalf of my nation. Like that's that's what I thought my honors was going to be, but. Um, in those classes, yeah, I definitely encountered people who were like, it's hard to think that these bones are, were a person. Like, like, and I'm like, oh, turn around, get the glare, <laughs> turn back. To- I sat at the front of class specifically because I didn't like to, to see and, and hear those things. Um, but I think that the department itself does a good job of trying to keep people grounded. Like, I joke about SFU being like, just popping out cogs for the CRM machine, but, but like, they definitely, um, they do their best to impart some of that humanity. And I think that they create some good, some good allies um, for indigenous communities, definitely. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's a strong, I mean, and, and that's a thing, right? I mean, uh, w- something I think about too, just my own personal practice is like, in some ways I'm kind of leftist in the idea that I really wouldn't mind seeing archaeology completely done by communities and mm-hmm. run by themselves. I still feel like if you have a good heart or a good mind that community members would want to work with you in the field because you are an ally. Mm-hmm. And you, do you think those relationships are being built at the university level or in a CRM world? Or how do you see those relationships playing out or being built and then lasting through time enduring to sort of wrestle with what's probably going to happen in the next 15 20 years with what's going on politically in canada uh, 
Is that, I have. Is that, is that, that, is that, is that too much? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I think that, like, you know, as an Indigenous person and as an archaeologist, I'm not anti-development, but I think that things should... Resource extraction is a whole other story, and yeah, I feel like yeah, so much yeah. CRM work is, is in the resource extraction field. Um, and, like, I don't know. I, I want to be, like, a role model. Like, I want to come back and, and shape... The minds I, I will my my end game is to be a prof mm-hmm. and come back and teach at SFU to mm-hmm. shape those little cogs. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I I don't know what it's gonna look like. Um, I think that ultimately, like the more indigenous archaeologists and the more indigenous PhDs in any field like are going to change the academic landscape and and like whatever professional component of that academic landscape. I guess. It's gonna change that discussion at SFU at the yeah. lowest level to the highest level. Yeah. And I think we're lucky, like, um, so too and SFU's archaeology department, they do a lot of work together. And mm-hmm. the field school that I did in 2015 was was all partnership-based. Like, the nation, um, SFU went to the nation and was like, what do you want to learn? And our archaeologist at the time, um, Dr. Jesse Morin, was like, here's all of these objectives, let's do what we can. And, and they really worked together to, like, form the goals of... Mm-hmm. I was going like, you know, we're all incompetent students. Most most people had never worked on a site before. So like the, the perils of working with field schools. But, you mm-hmm. know, um, when you work together to get like goals achieved and and some experience, cheap, free, <laughs> cheap to free experience in the, <laughs> in the in, like at the same time, it's pretty it's a win win usually. Yeah. And that relationship's continuing between Slaywood and SFU this summer as well. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to see that, you know, they're coming back and they're working together and yeah. trying to answer other questions. So obviously the nation wasn't horribly offended by our work in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> like we did good by our, our goals. Right. Yeah. So. So following along that, what uh, you, you said, you switched your, your research objectives uh, from osteology. Uh, what did you what did you transition into? Uh, I got hot for theory. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Is that a Van Halen? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually wanted to make a bunch of t-shirts and try and sell them. Like I bet um, the philosophy departments and stuff would totally buy them. <laughs> yeah. But um, I didn't like theory when I took theory with George. I yeah. hated it. It was like pulling teeth. And it was really frustrating. <laughs> Is that Phaedra again? <laughs> Lion King's full effect here. <laughs> Man, we're gonna pause for a, a great, quick, a quick, a quick Lion King update. Here comes Karen. What a great movie! <laughs> it, is, it is a great movie. So, um, so yeah, I, I got hot for theory, and I, um, I specifically there's a couple of the works of like Sonia Adelaide and mm-hmm. uh, Dorothy Lippert, and like mm-hmm. those kind of like passionate female archaeologists. We're like teaching in the states. Like I would have loved to study underneath them and apply mm-hmm. to do like my masters with them, like decolonizing archaeology or like mm-hmm. humanizing osteology. Um, but I'm afraid of Americans. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. And, and, and Ian actually is an American too. <laughs> Sorry, Sean and Ian. That's okay. I'm um, afraid of us too. <laughs> like basically, I um, I'm looking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think she lost her bud. She lost her oh, bud. Oh, Phaedra. <laughs> no buds, all duds. Yep. That is what we say on this on this podcast sometimes. All buds, mm-hmm. no duds. That's uh that's the website. If you uh, if you're looking for this podcast to share with a friend, you can share it from allbudsnoduds.com. A little bit of shameless self-promotion right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, so we're trying to answer Karen's how she switched from osteology to her 
which uh, your, your current your, your current research your honors thesis and, and then, yeah and you wanted to study in America well I wanted to study with these brilliant female scholars mm-hmm. um, who do work in like uh, community based participatory research and like decolonizing things and, and involving like dissent communities mm-hmm. in shaping the direction of, of research um, for my honors thesis I looked at uh, the surface collection of artifacts from the shores of Burrard Inlet by slow two community members mm-hmm. um, but like my honors thesis was traumatic and I had to fight with um, the ethics board at SFU to actually interview my family members because it was a perceived conflict of interest and uh, my mm. like why though why was it a perceived conflict because, of- uh, d- relatedness degrees of relatedness in, in on-reserve communities and the fact that the people I wanted to interview were my family members and they saw it as like a, a problem research integrity basically like my application had to go to the research ethics board like like I guess subjects uh, it's really complicated because, yeah that is very uh, very well like like white academics trying to make a decision about yes. whether you can talk to your own community members about your culture and trying to drive this avenue and perspective in your research and trying to do an internal anthropological study but yeah. then being prevented from doing that from it because of some and because of an ethical and, and also like in indigenous communities in particular it, there's a lot of of relatedness like there yeah. <laughs> like how are you supposed you're, to even if even if it's not like direct blood relatedness yeah. you're raised calling people cousin yeah um what I struggled with especially is there's like uh, section 9 of the TCPTS2 or whatever the act I can't even remember the acronym I just <laughs> let it all fall out of my brain um, but it, it's specifically for dealing with re- research in indigenous communities and first nations and Inuit communities and it's like the section of the research guide to protect indigenous communities um, but it's contradictory so on the one hand this section 9 is telling me that I should hire a research assistant from the community to facilitate like relationships and then on the other side it's like here I am with these family relationships but you're saying that it's not okay and then so the conflict of interest mitigation is like can you hire someone else to do these interviews that have conflicts and I'm like I am an undergraduate honor student like I do not have a budget to hire other people yeah. and mm-hmm. like ultimately it it was just it was late in the game I got a B I entered I interviewed <laughs> two people I didn't even know you could get B's for honest honors thesis um, honors thesis work but but apparently I got a B um, and I think that my supervisor was super disappointed in me and I haven't actually like talked to him since I submitted it and um, so I have some avoidance feelings around that but mm. but it's like the ethics process is traumatic and it's not designed for indigenous people who want to do research in their own backyards because so. it's not in that framework and that paradigm and here you're still operating under the colonial rule are these some of the roadblocks like SFU's like making strides towards, mm, towards I don't even stuff. know like I know that other universities don't make their honor students do research ethics reviews yeah um, but that was something I had to do because I wanted to talk to living people and it was something I started late in the game because usually in archaeology like you're not talking to living people so you don't need a re- it, my supervisor sort of agree, like admitted to like forgetting Mm. that I would need an ethics review. So it didn't happen as early as it could. And then like the trauma of, of like replying to their replies on my replies, like um, it it was just really intense and almost discouraging, but like I did it and I submitted it at like 4am, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the last possible day that I could. So like, like anything in university, I guess. Do you want to, you want to hear a personal honor story? Okay. <laughs> Quick tangent. What do you got, Sean? <laughs> I actually, I <laughs> I, yeah, I actually did my, I got high honors at University of Florida under Ken Sassman. Yeah. And then uh, when I started grad school, 
I was getting my diploma finally, and it didn't say with high honors. And I, so I went to like you know missions and all not the missions but the the board and went t- talked to everybody about uh, my grades and I had like a three eight in anthropology but I had an overall three five and if yeah. you drop below three five I oh. got three four nine they take it but I, but I graduated <laughs> with the robes and everything and got all the you know all the pictures so, my research it, my research was legit it's just that yeah actually at the end it didn't work out when I went to ask the lady like ooh, ooh, well, that's not fair. Why did I graduate with the robes? That seems shameful now. She's like, well, you got into grad school, didn't you? And I was like, <laughs> ah, thank you. Yes, that is that is the only reason I did any of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Karen, uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit about what you are getting up to in the future? Uh, I've, I've heard you are kind of moving on to stuff at UBC. Yes. <laughs> Oops, I wasn't supposed to use that voice. <laughs> 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 anyway, um, I uh, got accepted for my master's at UBC, and I hope to start it. Yeah, thank you. I hope to start it in September. Um, we're doing the dance, waiting for information about residence and daycare right now. <laughs> yes, you may. Do you need me to get it? The bar. Oh, look at Ian. Uncle Ian's going to do it here. <laughs> That's Uncle the one. Ian. Oh, you're going to have to crack it for him. Oh, yeah. He's obviously not a parent. Oh, here you go, kid. Uh, you change the tire real quick. I got <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> She's good. I'm no good at this. No. So, um, basically, like, I met Michael Blake the head of the Department of Anthropology. I met him at the BC Arc Forum last year, uh, ridiculously hungover because <laughs> it was the day after our meet and greet <laughs> at SFU. Um, and I think I need to help her. Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, uh, yeah. Uncle Ian's back at it. He's 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 going to do the buds. Uh, is it right if I put the earbud in your ear? You do need to ask permission, Ian. That's a good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's all about consent. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's looking. Oh, he's got it. This is great because I think Ian's been talking about having children on, on, on our other podcasts. <laughs> Ian and Soon Sean's baby podcast about future kids. Yeah, she's like, a, she's like a dream child. Don't don't even like. <laughs> so she doesn't like. set any precedents. <laughs> I like hoped and prayed for that child. Um, anyway, um, so I met Michael Blake and I was ridiculously hungover and um, my friend had like sang my praises to him already. So he's like, I heard so much about you. And I was like, he's like, well, what do you want to study? And I'm like, I want to study all the things. <laughs> um, and I like dropped a couple ideas and he was like, well, I should get you out to like UBC and we can chat and we can figure out like how to develop your research in a way that UBC, um, like we want you basically. He said, we want you. And I was like, okay. And then I was super persistent. Like I had to email him a couple times and it was like getting closer to the deadline. And I didn't have like my statement mm-hmm. of intent written. Oh yeah. And then he's like, I'm so glad that you were persistent. Cause like most people would have just like chickened out after the first two unreplied emails. Yeah. Um, and then I harassed him for like the third time and, and he agreed to meet with me and, so I'm, I, I'm out there with this like polished list of like, here are five things that I'd really love to study at UBC. And then he's like, I don't want to read this. He's like, I just want to know what, like, if you could study any one thing, what it would be. And I was like, ochre. I would study ochre. Like, mm-hmm. I would study ochre in any way. And, and then he asked a little bit more about, like, why or how. And I told him about, um, like, the first deep archaeological question that I asked was at um, SFPR on the St. Mungo cannery site, mm. um, which is, like, a previously disturbed site. But, but like, I, I was like, so 
do you think that like these instances of ochre because we were finding chunks of ochre in the deposits and like are these related to the fragmentary human remains and everyone was like oh my gosh this is such a great question like for like a novice like I was totally green at the time and so they thought it was this really great question and then like there were other people who just like kiboshed my mm. question and were like well it's a disturbed context so it doesn't even matter if they were associated and like <laughs> like mm. basically crushed my dreams and my first deep deep question and so I just sort of like brushed it aside yeah. but then um, Michael Blake got super excited about it and like um he talked about all of these other sites that he knew where there was ochre, and uh, I developed this research question about like the um, the chemical composition, and and I wanted to do sort of like I guess I am going to do <laughs> in September. I'm going to do like an ethnographic uh, analysis in combination with a geochemical sourcing project in order to to explore the ritual properties of ochre um, with modern Coast Salish communities to determine if the the ritual properties can be mapped onto the past hmm. so to be like Whoa. this ochre comes from this source and this is its its spiritual property and and this ochre comes from this source and we use it for that and then i want to see if if you could map it onto the arc record and be like so maybe over here this is what they were doing and maybe over there this is what they're doing and i'm getting goosebumps <laughs> oh, that's, but like yeah. um like obviously there's there's information that's that's private and secret and yeah, and yeah. maybe as like a Coast Salish person I'm, I might be privy to it but I might not be able to write about it and publish but mm. but like I'm still super interested and um, like ultimately my research goals are to like challenge the discourse and and there is a small segment of anthropology <laughs> there's a small segment of anthropology who um, they yes yeah. Uncle Ian, applesauce, oh, yeah. please. <laughs> Cody, can you borrow a spoon? <laughs> How did I get talked into this? <laughs> Where was I? Um, I was ranting about challenging anthropological discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, I see, like, my future research as directly confronting uh, that that line of anthropological thought that suggests that indigenous cultures stopped at contact or stopped evolving or changed and and that the ethnographic period is like trying to grasp at fleeting straws and um i think that like exploring like doing an ethnographic exploration and in conjunction with geochemical uh, analysis of ochre and the ritual properties of ochre will show that so many coastalist traditions like extended through time and extended through that that period of time where uh, where stuff was illegal and, and like the potlatch was banned and you, you know you weren't allowed mm-hmm. to congregate or gather or get I, permission off the rent all that yeah stuff. I think that my research could potentially show like the persistence mm-hmm. and yeah. resilience resilience is a good word and resistance is are there known ochre sources actually I'm quite ignorant I don't think I know off the top of my head where they are and in, in, throughout southern British Columbia I think that there are some ochre bluffs uh, you're a messy child. Um, there are some ochre bluffs in like Similkameen, I think. There's yeah. some ochre bluffs somewhere. I think that mostly down here on the coast it would have been traded for. But I know that there's some super potent red, like 
like I, I I just know from personal experience, not even archaeologically, like like I know that there are different kinds of ochre and they're respected for different reasons. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm not fully like privy to those properties, but mm-hmm. but like I hope that my position as like a Coast Salish woman could can allow me access to that information. Yeah, it's like I don't because nobody nobody's talking about that in archaeology. Not right not present. And ochre I think, is just ochre. And that's yeah. all it's ever described as. Yeah, and I think that I mean it's got great promise of um, if I can garner like a huge robust data set. Like there are other people who can use it. Like rock art researchers can can use it. Um, people doing like residue analysis on projectile points, they can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's got great potential to like be. I mean, even if my results are inconclusive, like other people might be able to use this data for cool things. Yeah. Um. Was it? I think it was Beth Velicky who was doing her right up in Squam. I think in Squamish, in Squamish mm-hmm. territory. On yeah, on like trying to get some geochemical stuff from from the ochre that was on mm-hmm. uh, the the surface of stuff. I think that one of the things that they encountered with that is is it's hard with the XRF to separate the background matrix. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. so that's one of the problems with the, the rock art research. And I've looked into like, I mean, I just did like a preliminary lit review for um, a class with uh, Dr. Patrick Dolan, which was like my most favorite undergrad class. Um, and He was my student. I know he was your student. Um, <laughs> but needless to say, I was a front row keener for that class. <laughs> and I did this like, I did a sort of lit review, like a pretend grant proposal mm. about ochre mm. studies. And um, so I looked into that, and um, what is problematic with the the actual like trying to shoot with the PRX or, PRXRF like the rock art because it picks up the background noise of like whatever stone is mm-hmm. painted on. Um, and another thing I think that they she came up with um, was just that there's huge variability in within an ochre outcrop itself. Like she went to a couple yeah. source outcrops, and there's some huge variability, but. But I think that, like, for non-destructive analysis, PR, PXRF or, or the near-infrared spectrometry, like, those are the ways to go. But um, I might look at, like, neutron activation analysis, which is destructive. Yeah. Um, but it's got a different fingerprint, I think. Like, I, I don't even know because I'm not super sciencey, which is also kind of funny. that <laughs> I want to do, like, this, <laughs> this huge, like, geochemical sourcing project. And I'm like, mm, it didn't do very well in chemistry. But, <laughs> but it ties in beautifully, though, with, yeah. like, sort of, Cultural knowledge and, yeah. and, and, and Mommy, I don't. Uh, that's my bar. I'm okay right now. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> it, I I felt like a bit of a similar way. Like I ended up doing some some like starch research, and there was a while where I was doing like confocal microscopy as part of my MA. It didn't make it into the final product, but I was I had no interest in that stuff when I was in high school, and it wasn't until I like had a story that I wanted to kind of find out a little more about before I kind of found myself being like, oh, okay, no, this is interesting when you use it to do this, mm-hmm. this other stuff. I um, I originally wanted to specialize, like, also in um, just stone tool analysis, and I got, like, my first university class being geology, I got kind of mm. obsessed with minerals and, like, fascinated with their crystalline structures and everything. Um, and I did try, I wanted to take upper-level mineralogy, but I would have needed chemistry and calculus mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had to stop because the calculus was just too extreme and yeah. um, I did take chemistry but I failed it because I was pregnant and I had like hypermesis gravidarum which is like super extreme morning sickness oh, and nice. like literally I, I failed chemistry I almost passed it like by the skin of my teeth but I ended up getting a withdrawal under extenuating circumstances because I eventually like 
sucked it up and told people that I was like dying. Yeah. Um, but I have this brilliant child to show for it, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> and I actually cool. want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, it's 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 hard enough being a student, just being an undergrad, right? You know, whatever most people are, I guess, some rough, typically between eighteen and twenty-five. But you were also raising a child, going through school, really reading this dense material and trying to balance that life. Were there skills that you picked up? by having a child, having Phaedra, and being a mother that you could apply to being a student that maybe helped your success? Because people would look at it, people snarkily could look at it as something, you know, as a negative, but it's completely not, is it? Well, I vacillated between, like, feeling super competent and then feeling also like an imposter a lot of the time. Like, um, the first year after she was born, I did distance. So I did all of my breath requirements. SFU has, like, a number of breath requirements that you need to get your degree. So I did everything I could by distance. And um, then it was just, you know, they tell you to sleep when babies sleep. And it's like, no, I need to do my homework when this baby is sleeping. And there were other days where I just, like, I I would just nurse her to sleep. I would keep her asleep for, like, 20 hours by just, like... She would like stir and I would just pop a boob in her mouth and I would keep writing my paper. <laughs> and, and like, you know, I wanted to name her as a co-author because she was so cooperative for some of this yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I think like the lesson that, that served me best is like surrender because cause it would be like, ah, shit, we missed a bus. Like, <laughs> that must not have been our bus or we would be on the bus. Like, so like yeah. just trying to, to be more laid back about things. And, and I would get all the time at school like, oh, I don't know how you do it. And I'm like, I don't know how I do it either. I don't even know how I'm wearing pants. Like, I'm not sure I could tell you how much I slept last night. And like somebody bought me a Fitbit and then, and like they the, show you how well you sleep at night. Fitbits. And I'm like, I wore it for like a week and I was like, I can't. I, it's just too dismal. Like, how do you want to know how much sleep I'm not getting? Yeah. Um, but I think that like my grades, my grades drastically improved after I got a full time daycare spot on campus. And mm-hmm. like you know, you look at the prices, and it's like my, our first year of daycare was like twelve hundred bucks a month before childcare. Stuff. It was Crazy. more than we were paying. It's criminal. It was more than we were paying for rent. But it's yeah. like you know, when when you meet the educators, it's like they're passionate and and you know, I they they were really really expensive co parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. so they were super cool, and I was pretty. Like it took a while to be comfortable, but but my grade, yeah, my, my grades really improved after she started in daycare, and that was a lot of surrender too. Of like, here's this tiny human that I've spent every waking, every waking minute for the last year caring for, and I'm just supposed to like hand her over and go to class. Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit, you know, it was tough in the beginning, but like, eventually, then I I lived for Monday mornings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's tough for all. I mean, it's tough for all mothers. I think it's. I, I, I don't I don't even want to compare because I'm married I'm not a, I, I've, I've had children I'm a little bit older in grad school but it but it did teach me time management it did teach me the surrender thing is kind of good because sometimes you can't predict your day and yeah. if Jess needed a hand or something was going on it was just like okay I'm just I'm not yeah. doing that today I'm gonna be here and, and try to do this to help out but I, I don't think I, I think you're uh, it's a very difficult thing to do and balance in life, so uh, you should be congratulated because it's not easy to push through and balance all that work and uh, expectations and be a mother, a mother that you want to be proud of, right, and then have yeah. a relationship with your child. My last year, like, well, Phaedra, <laughs> <laughs> too loud, please. <laughs> you can hear yourself sing after, okay? Um, the last year I struggled a little bit definitely with the imposter syndrome and that was something like I actually had to work through in counseling and just being like is this a is this a real A or is this like an indigenous single mother A like Mm. like were these professors like like Mm. taking uh, taking it soft on me or like 
giving me more leeway and also in the surrender uh i had it in a lot of things late (laughs) and like but 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 not like at the last minute being like i'm sorry i couldn't start this until tonight like but like actually telling professors in advance that like this is going to be late just so you know and i think that you know owning that um made up a lot for like the people who just handed in things late without without any notice and stuff yeah I handed a lot of things late, but no excuse. <laughs> yeah, right. But like, I would, I would honestly say, like, I have no excuse beyond the fact that this is my life. So you can just either like choose to accept it, and I'll take whatever penalties, or like you can tell me don't bother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of wisdom. I mean, what would you? I mean, no, I mean, no, yeah. I, I mean, it's a maturity level there too. The going to the next level. I mean, and, and dealing with. I don't know, compartmental. I'm not going to philosophize here. It's not a good time for Sean's personal <laughs> philosophies. Sean's Actually, philosophy I have a professor corner. who said that he would, he prefers grad students with kids. I can't remember who that was. Yeah. What are you just saying? Like they they end up yeah time management. I I like students in my class at Quantlin when they're when they're mature or they have children just because they it just forces you to get in them and they yeah. take the they take the work seriously and they try to do their best where because there's so many other responsibilities they have and there are other commitments and. And, and, and you're not just one thing, right? You're not just defined. But the imposter thing, I think, I want to talk about too because that's very common. That's for, common. I oh, felt. Yeah. I still yeah. feel that way lots of times. You know, I always feel like oh, I don't know enough about that. Why do I don't do this? Or I'm inadequate in that. And I mean, I think that's a good self reflexivity to have. I think it's. I mean, I'm justifying this. Like, it's a good <laughs> characteristic to have because I don't walk around as like the cock of the walk on the site or yeah. like stick my chest out. I'm always. We're introverted and thinking through things that way. I know I'm a goofball, you know that, but I do think eternally and doubt myself a lot. But I, I, I do think archaeology kind of rewards people who are a little bit humble and a little bit less objective in how they see the world. Like, if you, if you are approached with, like, or, or you, you find something in the field or, you know, or in a lab or wherever, and you immediately say, oh, this is exactly how it has to be, it's, mm-hmm. that's... That can be so problematic because <laughs> oftentimes it's, it's so speculative it's that so if you come out and make a definitive answer, it's going to get turned around on you very quickly. Yeah. Like, Whereas a little bit of humbleness and a little bit of like, hey, how about everybody, you know, take a peek at this? Like, I, I kind of, and so many different disciplines are are uh, centering upon archaeology. Like, you're borrowing from so many mm-hmm. different things. Like, you can't be an expert in everything. You have to like, you have to give up that expertise to all the people that you're around. <laughs> yeah um and i feel like that's i i don't know i wish more archaeologists would be a little bit more humble or or, yeah. or a little bit more like give in to their imposter syndrome a little bit more i don't know well i mean i had like some of the best advice i got while i was working through that year was like you know you think that you're a terrible writer until you get to grad school and you become a ta and you read other undergraduate papers and you're like okay maybe i'm not that bad of a writer so yeah. like there's that but i also like i don't know just being like one of the only loud indigenous people like on campus like you know they estimate that the population at, at sfu is like there's about 600 indigenous students how many students are there total 20,000, 30,000 any given Jeez. year. Wow. So, like, 
you know, then then the people who hang out in the Indigenous Student Center and the First Nations Student Association, so the people who are part of that, the physical community, there's probably under a hundred of us. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we all have different passions and we're all different majors. And, you know, you make friends, but you don't take them with you to class always, right? So it's like yeah. to be that one loud Indigenous voice and it's like, did I get this A because I earned it? Or did I get this A because I'm just saying something different than everyone else? Yeah. Or so like, yeah, I had to examine a lot of those feelings and I just really tried not to read the writing of my peers because would you come with the come up with? Do you think that you earned those A's? I I believe you did. I think so. I mean, like, I do things unconventionally. I still write things at the last minute. I like everyone's like, you can't do that when you get to grad school. I'm like, well, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you could always. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So, I mean, I work best under pressure, but but it's like dancing around that, like living on stress hormones, right? Of like the I haven't slept and I haven't finished this, but you know, I I can just push through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. One of the things that came through, I was really quiet in in graduate school. Like I, you probably don't think that now. I don't know, I'll, I'll spoken, but <laughs> the first couple of years as at Florida, I was very quiet. And it wasn't till I went away to go live and work in communities in Fiji, where when I saw what I was learning and putting it into practice, and came back to class, and then we were talking like in historical anthropology, we were talking theory, where I'd hear people speak in class, I'm like, that's freaking bullshit. <laughs> and then I would actually feel compelled to speak, and that never would have happened unless it was drawing on some real teaching, and some real learning, stuff I was uh, getting exposed to while in the Lao group. Do you feel like, do you get confidence in your teachings or, or, or what knowledge is being passed in the community, at least to you, that you feel like you can stand up and say these things when you hear these ideas in class? I mean, I mean archaeology is filled with literature that's written by non-Native people where you could read the language and really be annoyed or perturbed or disgruntled, or yes. right? <laughs> uh, well, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Like The first being... Um, I think that anthropology specifically, like I pursued an anthropology minor quite late in the game and I wanted to make my application at UBC look better because Mm -hmm. UBC is so anthropological and Mm -hmm. I've heard that some archaeology grads like struggle a bit in their first year without that anthropological background. So it's like, I want to be prepared. I'm going to do this. Um, But anthropology is horribly privileged. Like, Like it's this culture of like, let's get a big grant and go travel internationally and look at some exotic other like... No offense, because I know that you did your field work in BC. Yeah, but I had like, to. But, but, but I will say this. I, that's what taught me in the early 2000s when I just started was getting into sort of this indigenous framework and mindset and really seeing that, wow, what we're doing can be made meaningful. And it was that interaction on the ground with communities that sort of changed my trajectory. But, but I was going along the typical classical way everyone's kind of trained. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thought I had when you were talking about that is like feeling a little bit um, – like I'm missing out as a parent, like not getting to do international field schools. Like uh, way back when I thought I was going to study osteology, I wanted to do this like a tiny Greek island and, and like a classical children's cemetery field school. And I was mm. like, yeah, man, this is what I want to do. But then I realized that I would have to like hire a nanny, <laughs> like bring a full time caregiver with me to work these six day field weeks and, and stuff. And it's just impractical. Um, so I totally lucked out with a local field school and, and also like working on behalf of my nation and learning field, field skills mm-hmm. in that realm. But you want to be local. That was like one of the things that came up in yeah. your speech, wasn't it? I do want to be local. Um, but, but that international experience is something everyone draws upon, right? Like yeah. 
but it's also again the privilege of archaeology right like not everyone can afford international field schools and not everyone can can just afford to like to like leave for a summer you know especially not as as a parent yeah and one of the things that they would say to me in the law group they was some of the when I was sitting around drinking kava with everyone is they like you know only two type of people come here those who are intelligent or those who have money and I said well I'm neither of those so but it was when I was like a research assistant but like it was interesting that 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 idea was out there why people come to those places but it just it does show that kind of privilege and you know here we are but you can break some of that down and really cultivate relationships that can last a long time but there is a cachet to like the foreign field schools and they are so expensive yeah so time consuming yeah and uh, a lot of them like they're they're pitched as like the one i went on i i loved i had i had such a good time and i i felt like i learned a lot uh, but it was very much pitched as like a, hey, you're going to university, you're young, you got to f- like find yourself a little bit. Why don't you find yourself on field school in Fiji? And, uh, and I did, and there was like a lot of formative experiences there, but it's like it's definitely coming from a, a place of extreme privilege. It's, yeah. So I just wanted to get uh, your general broad ideas about uh, what you want to do with archaeology. So at the end of this, this process of academia, and kind of the summation of all of your uh, all of your experience a couple of years down the line. What do you what do you hope to do with archaeology, and what do you hope archaeology can do for the world? I guess. <laughs> what are we going to do for the people? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that I might take a break after my master's mm-hmm. and work for a bit, um, probably for my nation. Maybe I'll take Sean's job. No, I don't actually know. <laughs> I would welcome that. <laughs> but just for a couple of years, like I definitely, um, I want to pursue a PhD just so people can call me Dr. Karen Rose Thomas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's the best. I'll tell you right now. It's the best. <laughs> also, like I, uh, <laughs> I hope, um, I hope to, to be a professor and, and to shape those young minds. Mm-hmm. And um, like, yeah, I think I mentioned on the break, I don't know if I mentioned like actually on the podcast that I that I I shouldn't have to look to the eastern seaboard to study with a brilliant indigenous woman scholar. Like mm-hmm. I want to, to be someone here local um, for people to come to like other and uh, like other want to be academics like I just um I want to be there for for the future. Mm-hmm. And do you see in the future, kind of go off what Ian's asking about, do you see, can you see how archaeology could be a tool for social or political or uh, environmental justice? Is there a way you see a future of archaeology, what it would look like ideally for you, maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the road? Well, I think that, like, uh, I've had this conversation with a couple of people and, like, with... Um, with my friends, like the brilliant women who challenged me in my undergrad, like, you know, we sat in a row and tried to outdo each other in grades and, and keenerness. But, um, like, I think that instead of another flavor of post-processual archaeology, like, ultimately, the discipline itself needs to be transformed where every practitioner of archaeology like takes into consideration the needs and the desires of descent community, whether they're indigenous or not, like, Ultimately, it should be more of a collaborative experience and more like like research ideas and stuff need to come from within communities. And they they like engagement should just be a thing that happens um, aside from like, well, I'm an indigenous archaeologist and or I'm I'm uh, this kind of archaeologist like like it should just be 
um, like an activist element of archaeology should be present in 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 all flavors. Mm-hmm. I think, and that's just the archaeology. We don't have the labels necessarily. It's just the the the, the discipline itself has transformed internally, structurally. That now archaeology just promotes this or has this thread of it that's always going forward where there's this deep awareness and we're activists and we're trying to change it and, and yeah. it, it's been changed but I don't I mean that's what I like to see too yeah I don't think we're there yet no <laughs> <laughs> you're talking like it's now Sean no. um, we did it <laughs> yeah, yeah like, we'd be like Bush we did it <laughs> I think that I think that it will take work but I yeah, oh, by infil- by infiltrating the academy, like I hope to 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 be a practitioner of this new 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 archaeology <laughs> or whatever we're gonna call it when we get there. Mm-hmm. No, I'm 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 hoping, and hopefully the three of us and others, we can all be allies and we can all continue these relationships. Yeah, well, and then ally is such a loaded word as well. Like I I've used it a lot throughout this this interview, and mm-hmm. and I've used it a lot throughout my academic career so far, but. But like, I like accomplice. Like, oh, why can't we yeah. be accomplices? Yeah. <laughs> it's so much more illicit. Yeah, that's like, that's pretty solid. I yeah, like that. I'm into it. Yeah. Okay. Well. Well, um, thank you so much uh, for yeah. you know joining us in this shady apartment on a beautiful sunny day when there's so much to do outside and it's, it's so beautiful. So Are you kidding? Uh, there's like twenty thousand people out on the drive. I'm okay in here. Oh, okay. <laughs> I feel yeah. safe. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. It is Italian day today on Commercial Drive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, thank you again for so much for, for coming out. And uh, I guess we'll catch you next time on the on the transect. Yeah, that sounds good. Phaedra, you want to say bye? Mm. Okay, she doesn't. <laughs> okay, not interested. Bye. bye, Karen. Bye. Thanks for thinking I had things to say. Oh, yeah. No, no, this, is, this is wonderful. We're going to get smoothies. Now? Yes. And we're going to ride the sky train. Nice. <laughs> that sounds like a day. That's a day. That right. sounds like a day. All right. See you next week, guys. See you. Bye.